Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be going through macronutrients with Will Greenberg. Will's an assistant strength coach with the Buffalo Bills. Will has a lot of insight on nutrition. He worked with me at Army West Point where he oversaw the nutrition program there and then was able to take a lot of that information and expertise and parlay that to his experience with the Buffalo Bills. Went into a lot of great topics and not only just what macronutrients are and how we should be thinking about them, but really how we should leverage them in a team or group setting or even on a one-on-one or personal basis. This is an amazing conversation. I am so excited how this turned out. If you want to listen to this entire module or go through all of the other modules we have at phpodcast.com, you can sign up for a membership, which gets you access to not only the modules, but all the other stuff that goes with it, a private forum where we can ask any question you want. Go into other things like debates, lectures. We'll be coming out with web shows. It's going to be an amazing platform for you, and I think it's going to be a great resource for you. So if you want to learn more about it, head over to phpodcast.com, sign up for a member, and get access to all this great stuff. Without further ado, let's get Will on the line. All right, everybody, we got my good, good, dear, dear friend, to quote Gary Gray, Will Greenberg. Will, thank you for being on the show. We're going to talk macronutrients. Yeah, man, I am fired up here. Uh, so uh, let's hit it. You are a assistant trade coach for the Buffalo Bills, and you oversee a lot of the nutritional stuff for that. What was your first response when I was like, hey, Will, let's talk about macronutrients? I would say my first response was, man, I can't wait to talk about why we shouldn't talk about macronutrients. Oh, my, yeah. first, my first thing that I was thinking about, of course, there's obviously the, the peer-reviewed literature that has been done by people way smarter than me um, that I like to use and I use as my framework for how to go about as, as an evidence-based practitioner. But beyond that, I, I will have to say humbly that I've failed more for all the athletes that I've coached. I have failed more of those athletes in trying to get them to adhere to that than I have been successful with. And I mean that because doing it as a, in football with a lot of athletes and even in basketball, when I was in basketball with less athletes is to do it at scale is very difficult. Um, One of the things I've always found is writing a meal plan for someone that details the macronutrient breakdown. And even if you're giving them the foods to eat has never, I shouldn't say never, but very rarely has been successful for me. So when it comes to macronutrients, having an understanding of generally how much protein, carb, fat you should take in, the timing of it is the next layer, which is is highly important. But having that understanding is really just the, the basic knowledge. And it's you know, when you asked me to speak about this and I went and to make my notes, I just, I did less than a 10 minute Google Scholar search on, you know, the, the IOC Olympic Committee consensus on sports nutrition or Brad Schoenfeld and hypertrophy nutri- for, uh, you know, his nutrition for hypertrophy. And a- anyone can find that. It's free access. It's easy. So it's, it's not that difficult if, if this podcast were to be a macronutrients, we'd be done in, three minutes and be like, Hey, that was a great talk. See you out there. Here's some links. Yeah. And everyone would be, you know, 5% body fat, uh, and just thriving in life, but it's just not the way that it operates. So like I said, it's, you know, if, if, if I'm trying to give someone a meal plan, I put a lot of time and effort into that of, okay, how is, how is this going to be structured? What should they be eating? What are the things that, that go into that? And I've always found that it, it fell flat. And so over time, you know, especially, just my experience, but then also spending time with the precision nutrition level one and level two, which I thought were both great. Uh, my interest in just how people behave and that interest to make me a better practitioner of how can I get people to change their behaviors or influence their behaviors or, you know, make their, make their path a little bit easier to go along. That's going to make them more successful at their, at their sport or their job or whatever, they're trying to accomplish. Uh, with that interest, I think I've tended or trended towards trying to create relationships with people, understand where they're at, and break down barriers of where they're trying to go, not where I think they should go. 
And I think that's been a really successful part of if I have had any success with people in nutrition, it's meeting them where they are, finding what's the smallest change I can make that's going to have the greatest impact. Um, And even that's difficult to do. You know, it's and I'm starting from from step zero. And it's hard to do with people because with food, there's such a cultural, emotional, psychological component to eating that behaviors, everyone eats, you know, so everyone's an expert in how they eat. So for you to come and say, hey, I'm the expert in how you eat is battling, you know, 18 or 22 or 30 years of someone who's already been an expert in in how they eat. So unless someone's coming to you and saying, hey, you know, I've had I've had athletes at a very high level say, "I'm write me out a schedule and I'll set a timer to when I eat. And they've been really successful. I mean, that's, that's the one that you write about in theory of like, hey, this is how it's supposed to work. And it's worked really, really well. And if, you know, in, in, a, in a broad 10,000 foot view, that's consistent protein feedings. You know, the, the, the recommendation is you know, 1.6 grams per kilogram uh, of body weight per day or, you know, 0.4 grams per kilogram uh, per feeding. So you're doing that four to six times. Um, Using carbohydrates around training very intentionally, pre, post, um, the different types of carbohydrates for the rest of the day. You can go as far as wearing a continual glucose monitor of figuring out what different types of carbohydrates uh, affect your, your blood sugar levels and consequently your insulin. And then, you know, using fats, just getting them through good uh, sources of, of nutrition, especially through animal protein, and structuring that in a way where it's set up, knowing when they're going to train, when they're going to sleep, you know, how many t- how what kind of access they have to, to food, whether or not they cook or they meal prep. But like I said, I, I, can, I can count on one hand, and I wouldn't even fill up a full hand of people that I've done that with that have been compliant to that. You know, one of the other examples, I think, especially in college, was a guy would come up because they knew they had to come up to me and and ask me for a meal plan because they were told by a coach that, hey, they need to lose weight or they need to gain weight or, you know, whether they felt they needed to or not. And my first response started to be, I will do this for you. I will spend the hours and hours of time to put into you if for the next week, the only liquid that you drink is water. So that means no alcohol, that means no milk, that means no soda, that means nothing but water. And with that ask, immediately, I'd say more than 50% would say, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. That's that's not possible. And that's a that's a very small ask. But it's, it's challenging for people because they're used to juices and sodas and alcohol or whatever they're going to drink that's not water. And most failed. And if they could come back to me in the next week and look me dead in the eye and say that they did that, then I'd be willing to take the next step with them. The ironic part about that is that whether they were trying to gain weight or lose weight, the players that did that, that spent a week hydrating and only drinking water, started to see the results that they wanted to of both either their weight gain or weight loss just because they were doing that. And they're like, wow, I should just keep doing this. And then the, the friction for them to change lowered even more. And that was, that was probably a crude attempt at meeting people where they were because I think I was just trying to prove a point at first. Wait, are you talking when you were at Southern Utah or Appalachian State? Uh, um, I remember doing it, at, uh, starting it at Army and doing it a lot at Southern Utah. But you had so much on your plate, right? Like you were responsible for all your teams. You had one other assistant. And like at that point, you're going, I have to be very strategic with when and where I use my time. And if you're not even willing to just drink water for a week, then how am I, why would I waste my time? Um, Which is, I think something in that, like, not to cut you off here, but I think there's an element that here's a situation where a lot of people are misguided on the fact that we're working with highly motivated people and where they think they're actually going to get the most ROI from. Like motivation is not this like ubiquitous thing. It's like very specific and things that they value, right? So some people like, I know I'm going to get playing time if I just, get in the, uh, the playbook and I do that, right? Or I'm, I'm a baller. All I got to do is get on the court and play. I don't need to spend any time in the weight room. Like, and the same thing with nutrition. So you have this one end of the spectrum that people just think, 
oh, that person's universally motivated, right? Well, not necessarily the case. The other one, it's the incentive is aligned, right? Like millions and millions of dollars potentially be at stake if they just make better choices. And then the final aspect, which is something that I think is the, I work with Gen Pop. I work with a lot of just people that like, you know, give me what you would do with an elite level athlete. Like, I wouldn't do any of this stuff because the truth be told, it's like even in a situation where a lot of this stuff that you have right now at your disposal, like having meals ready for them, you can plan their meals. You can actually get some, you can actually connect with their private chef who's making all their meals or a meal prep service is doing everything for them. And the, still, the, the thing that really comes out of the wash is like, you have all these things in place, highly motivated, highly incentivized, and really, really like opportunistic resources. And it's still coming down to, I just got to make a connection with this person and my, find out where they're at and what they're willing to do before I can even get into this stuff. Because you can control everything and it's definitely worth the time as opposed to my situation where all those resources are not at their disposal. And then the motivation is like, I want to lose weight. Well, how bad do you really want to lose weight? Because it's going to hit the threshold where you're going to go to bed hungry or you're going to have to eat foods that are not necessarily as flavorful or as palatable. And you're going to have to make this choice. And it's going to be that stressful day. And you're going to feel like shit. And you're going to want to be like, damn, we're just going to give in. And then all things are, are through the wayside. you know. And, like, and I think that's a paradox of this all. It's like, it's hard for everybody. And there's no like, yes, there's like from a regression to the mean, we could find this macronutrient split is perfect. And at this time, it's perfect. As opposed to like the real rate limiting step is you got you just have a newborn and you could plan out your weekly nutrition still doesn't change the fact that there could be one day that she doesn't decide to sleep and all that knowledge and all that insight and all that motivation, like you're going to be more valued if your body composition is better. And you look better, but you know, at the sake of like Thursday morning hits, I slept two hours last night. I don't care. And that's real. That's what we're all dealing with. And you can fractal that out to any kind of level, but th that's what I'm hearing right now. It's like, yeah, macros are, I get it. They're an important concept, but reality is people are actually doing this. Maybe not as focused on that as you may think. Am I right on that? Yeah. So I can imagine that some of the listeners of this are either going to be coaches or people just trying to improve. So it's people trying to improve others but also people trying to prove themselves. So, you know, the, the lens that I just gave my insight on is from coaching people is how am I able to change someone else's behavior, which in and of itself is difficult. And I think like you just said, or you just summarized that it comes down to building a relationship with someone that is meaningful enough and connected enough that you're understanding who they are what they what resonates with them and why nutrition would be important because there's going to be people who nutrition may never be important enough to them because it's always important to you as the practitioner like it always seems like well why aren't they so I'm giving them gold they don't get it I'm giving them something that is going to benefit them they don't get it they, they, you know they don't get it you know but at the same time you know it's 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 not their job to care about it it's our job to make it important to them or make it easy enough and accessible enough that even if it's not that important, they're finding some benefit from that. I think there's a lot to understanding that and not getting frustrated by it because nutrition is a tricky one in that there's not, there's not a lot of immediate results. So you have to put a lot of time and effort into it. And I've always noticed it takes about for me, if I'm to if I really am am dialed in, it takes about five weeks for me to really look in a mirror and say, "Hey, you know what? I'm seeing something different. Whether it be weight loss, weight gain, you know, uh, muscle tone, anything that that you're looking at." But five weeks of you know boring, and it's hard to explain to someone who in their life has eaten their whole life, they've figured out a way to survive it up until this point and may not even recognize that they don't feel optimal. And this, the changes are slow enough that, and I'm sure you've heard it before, a guy starts, uh, someone eats, starts eating clean for five, 10 weeks, and then they have a, you know, if you want to call it a cheat meal, or they, they eat something that's not um, nutrient dense or something that is refined. And they're like, man, I feel terrible. Is this how I always felt? And it's kind of like, yeah, it's probably they're probably just now seeing a reference point. 
And I think that's a selling point. But to get someone to do that for a long time, you and I both know is difficult. The consistency is very hard. And, and coaching someone through that, it's more about behavior change, relationships, understanding, meeting people where they are, and then providing the, the minimal effective dose. And a lot, of, a lot of times it's very, very boring, which is, you know, again, oftentimes not what people want to hear. They want to hear the hack of, can I do this detox or I want to do this? And I will, I'll give, if, if people are looking on this podcast for my insight on that, I think the number one thing for me is hydrating to a level that you probably didn't realize that you needed to hydrate. Water is the fourth macronutrient, in my opinion. Right. And I'm not you know, going to... I made that up. Yeah, know. that's great. I, I, I've made up plenty <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say I understand the biochemistry as well as someone that that knows it better than I do. But I, I do know anecdotally that if I'm trying to get the greatest function out of my body, I feel like it's always correlated with when I'm like, why am I peeing so much? Why I'm, I'm peeing 10 times a day. And when I'm doing that, I feel at my best. Um, I'll give you another example. You know, we did a, a weight loss competition a few years ago. And I think this is probably lends to the point of consistency. I really did the weight loss competition because I knew that everyone was going to ask me for advice in the building. And I decided I don't want to start giving everyone advice and for them to fail. So I'm just going to join the competition so that, no, I, I, I can't have any uh, – sorry, I can't give you advice. I am doing it too. It's a conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry, conflict of interest. <laughs> I, I just ran a science experiment on myself. And I think the important part of a science experiment is that it's controlled. So I pretty much lived the same day for seven weeks. So 49 days. I pretty much lived the same day. In where I ate my meal, what I ate, how much water I drank, the amount of calories, the type of exercise. And what ended up happening is my body responded so easily because and I think this lends towards some neuroscience research. I, I read a book, Seven and a Half Lessons um, about the brain. Lisa Feldman Barrett, I believe her name is. The brain is a prediction machine and it just wants to be able to predict what's going to happen next. And by giving yourself, your brain, the knowledge that when you wake up tomorrow, the first thing you're going to do is ride a bike uh, at a heart rate of 130 to 140 for 45 minutes while drinking, you know, 40 ounces of water. And you're going to have your first meal at this time. You will drink 200 ounces of water. You'll, you know, and, and, and it became easy. It became one of the hard parts about losing weight is the discomfort of it. And I did not feel uncomfortable at all because my body knew what was going to happen. It was almost like it was the homeostasis was losing a pound a day. And I ended up losing 39 pounds in now granted some of that. I, I did a water cut at the end safely. I will add, but I, I called the guys, the UFC training center and asked, and asked, how do you, how, how am I supposed to do a water cut here? Um, but in, in reality, I probably lost about 29 or 30 pounds in that in those 49 days very easily because my body was it was so consistent and that's again the two things that the principles that i just laid out of hydration and consistency are so boring that if i tried to sell that i'd be about as a successful of a businessman as how, if i were trying to, to sell broccoli yeah you know like no one wants that so on that note though because I, I agree i think that's the you look at bodybuilding, you look at anything that's body composition driven, like the outcome or the incentive is tied into who's got the best body comp. You see this extreme regimen. But with that comes, though, too, and this is something that I actually got from uh, the book, The Great Starvation Experiment. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Ansel Keys, the guy who's basically the, um, the cholesterol, like we know Ansel really well. He did a, a controlled experiment on starvation examples during World War II because his biggest fear was famine striking all of Europe. And they wanted to do clinical research on the impacts of starvation and how to get people out of it and try to figure out what supplements to take and what actual macronutrients would have the biggest net impact to regain that weight. Or if we have food scarcity, what do they need from a micronutrient level to survive till we have food increasing? It's a fam it's really, really amazing book. And it's like a really like seminal research. 
So you had like 30 people come in, starved them pretty much to about, I think, 25% loss in body mass. Some people lost up to 50% mm -hmm. and then kept them at that for six months and then tried to regain the weight in the last three months of that. So a full year of clinically researched starvation and then trying to get them back up. But the really big one was the psychosis associated with it. Like these people went insane. One guy, like multiple people had to leave the research because they've done physical harm to himself. One guy cut his hand off while chopping wood they were required to get like 10,000 steps a day just to kind of like get the necessary output of uh, exercise to burn the calories, relatively speaking, to controlled feedings. It's amazing, amazing research. And like a lot of the actual weight loss research still to this day is based off of that research. And it's like goes in this whole thing of using human subjects for like really invasive things. And there's a whole other thing of these guys were uh, World War II defectors. They didn't want to go to World War, like go battle because they were pacifists. So they essentially put them in a weird position of like serve your country without fighting, like, or mm -hmm. be, a, be the person that never really sacrificed himself for the greater good of humanity. It was an amazing book and like a lot of psychological insight, but you and I have talked about this, like off of like fit your macro based diets of like, there is a downside to some of this like myopic focus on just carbs, fats, and protein, like maybe some autoimmunity, maybe some psych, like some eating disorder type outputs. And like, I know people really struggle with that. And like one of the things about a routine, once you get momentum, one small deviation, like, damn, I ran out of cottage cheese and fruit for that Thursday morning and your whole day is in a tailspin, right? And you just fall off the wagon and just, yeah. so there's like a lot of elements of like these like hardcore routine-based diets. And I felt the first thing when I did bodybuilding, like I was like borderline eating disorder, right? And that's why I struggled to even come close to doing that this day. I probably have never really wanted to do a very hardcore macro-based approach at that regimen based off of the level of systemic impact that I had on me when I did it. But talk about potentially the the psychological impact of that and how how well did you transition or assimilate back to normal life after you did that body comp challenge? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am no expert in, in the realm of psychology. I don't have my degree in anything, but I will talk about my lived experience of it and what I've seen from and talk to with people that I work with around nutrition. The motivation for me was strong because there was a monetary incentive of winning a competition. So that's, all right, seven weeks. And I'm also someone- And you're very competitive. Yeah, I'm very competitive. And I'm someone who very much enjoys and lives my life by routine. I actually just had my second child and she's born on the same day as my first child. So, you know, got to love routine. That's just great planning. Yeah. Just great planning, man. And- um, no one, no one you're- uh, best ready to reproduce and you just all right here it is man i hear you man <laughs> i'm someone who really thrives in a routine in ways so for me and my personality it it meshed but again it was only seven weeks of my life and it was at a time where i felt like i had the resources to do that and i was gonna run it as a science experiment so it was interesting to me you know i wanted to see how to stabilize my blood how, what would stabilize my blood sugar the best I wanted to, uh, to, um, to see, you know, how I hadn't been under 200 pounds since high school. Could I get back under 200 pounds? You know, so there was like these motivating factors. And there was also a longer term factor of, well, the seven or eight weeks after that is leading up into summer. Now that I'm super lean, will I be able to put on a whole, how much muscle mass can I put on? So then it was the next experiment. So a lot of it to me was motivating because there was a purpose involved but a lot of that purpose was also out of my curiosity and it wasn't necessarily in vain of how do I feel about myself and if I didn't lose a weight would I feel worse about myself it, it was more of an objective experiment to see what would happen um, I think that when things are tied up when it comes to nutrition when things are tied up about how you feel about yourself in your lived experience that's a that's a different set of parameters and also it's open-ended where it doesn't end so it's like okay i feel man i have to do this for the rest of my life i don't know if i can do that and that's where rebound effects happen i knew that the transition out of that was going to be a difficult one both physiologically and psychologically so i prepared for that but not everyone does and people have a rebound effect of well i did this diet now i'm skinny and okay now i can go back to eating normally and the body is thrown into this loop of, wow, I'm not used to this and I 
am going to take advantage of it, advantage of it for as long as I can because I don't know. I've been starved for the last X amount of weeks. I don't know when the next time. Again, the brain is a prediction machine. I don't know when the next time is that I'm going to get this. I'm going to hold on to this calorie, or I'm going to hold on to this energy, so that I can I can store for for another time. Um, so I think there's there's a component of having a purpose to what you're doing, and you know I it's so cliche to say to make it a lifestyle, but really it's just it's not about the outcome. It's about eating in a way. And treating your body in a way that shows that you're respectful towards what your body is. And I think that's a way to look at it of here's this objective being of a human body. Can I take care of this thing? And I'm gonna make good decisions for it, and I'm gonna make bad decisions for it, just like I do in life. You know, I can make good decisions to to walk away from an argument, or I can engage in this argument and you know, at Thanksgiving with a with a you know, crazy uncle, you know what I'm saying? Like it's there are all these decisions you make on a daily basis that are good and bad. It's the same thing with with eating. It's just more visible of an outcome that oh man, I, now I feel bloated, or man, I'm I'm not as skinny as I want to be, or I need to lose weight, or I need to gain weight. So it's always kind of reflecting right back in the mirror of whether or not you're doing the right thing. Um, and I think you know they talk a lot about that in with precision nutrition about the psychological effect of of eating. And, you know, now that I have two daughters, I have to think of eating in a very different way because my job is about keeping people within a three pound, you know, range for their performance. And I, I don't want to approach my raising my children that way because it's not healthy from a fact of, you know, a, a female growing up thinking that their weight is supposed to be a certain place. It's a very specific thing in sports to keep someone's weight where it is. And, and it's and, you know it's a, it's a struggle. So again, going back to coaching people on that, it's it's a psychological component. There's a, a a component of trust and relationship with that person to say, hey, I'm not trying to make you feel bad that you're not in your weight range or that doesn't make you a worse person. We're just you and I both have a purpose to try to get something accomplished, and it's done through these means. But I'm painting a picture like that's just. Okay, that that sounds good, and everyone goes on their merry way, and it, it works every time. Like I said, I the ratio of failure to success there is is much higher than people are willing to give credit for, or maybe I'm just not as good as <laughs> as other people at, at doing that. I was always great. I was the best at it. I never failed. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I would always lie to coaches when they asked me what the guy's weight was. I'm like, what do you? What, what, I'm thinking my best best case scenario. What do they want to hear? Like, oh yeah. Such such two seventy nine man, he's crushing it. Like really, wow, okay, great. That's great, yeah. Because last last week he was like two forty nine. Like yeah, no, no, he's been doing great, man. Like why? <laughs> I got the plan for him thirty pounds in a week. So yeah, man, just hard work, dedication, man. Yeah. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. So <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you know we've gotten off the topic obviously of macronutrients in terms of what the research says, but like I said, I don't think there's much to be discussed beyond what the most current consensus would say and. Because even once we get into the strategy of how to use those macronutrients, it's all dependent on the effect of someone's life that it has on it. Now that I have two children, two and a, and a newborn, uh, my sleep is affected. My day is affected. You know, just being able to be on this call is, you know, there's a short window of time that I can do this, let alone meal prep or uh, cook my food or get my get my meals in. And I think another important part of if we're talking about macronutrients in terms of energy source and and calorie, is there are so many things that also it's not it's not simple. Like you can make you can make it simple as a framework, but the things that affect that framework are vast. So if you get under six hours of sleep, you will hold on to more of a calorie than you would if you got eight hours of sleep. So you're going to be holding on to more energy just because you didn't get the adequate amount of sleep. So you could have the same, you could have two people could, you could run a, you know, in a parallel universe, the same person has, sleeps five hours every night and has the same exact diet. And the other person in the, in the fifth dimension or whatever sleeps eight hours a night and has the same diet, they would have two different outcomes. And so just that alone is wild that, the macro, the idea of just macronutrients, calorie in, calorie out, 
it's a great framework to go by, but it's not always 100% accurate. There is another, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the way to say this, but I remember it was, we were at West Point. I remember us talking about this. You know, your gut bacteria, there are, the majority of your gut bacteria are divided into firmicutes and bacteriodes, I believe. I, I butchered bacteriodes. It's bac- no. Yeah, whatever it is. Anyway, Missing Microbes is the book that I read. It was, this was back in 2000. Uh, shoot, fourteen when when we first started there. Blaze, right? That was the name. Uh, Martin Blazer, yeah, Martin Blazer, Martin J. Blazer, the Blazer, man. the Blaze, man, yeah, man, what a time to be alive back then. We were so big in the gut with uh, Perlmutter oh, and yeah. the Blaze, man. Oh, dude, we were, that was that was the peak of gut bacteria phase in our lives, man. That will come back around too. It will. Yeah, it's it's too important, huh? Yeah, the the obese population has a uh, a higher amount of firmicutes. So, and what the, the ratio is higher in one than in lean people. And when they did fecal transplants or they changed the gut bacteria of obese patients, they drastically lost weight, which was which was bizarre. No, I, but I think that was also to the part where we talk about like trends and patterns. Like that's a really big process. Like that's a very like daunting thing to ask someone and it like you know one of the things that we're getting i think was coming out here is like sleep is just a lot harder to change right people like will be i can't like i don't have any bandwidth to do that where it's like i can tell you to eat more or less of something and you feel like you have more control and autonomy of that like you can be more capable of that and like i think that's where the big thing comes out like if i was gonna say hey will man like you could get way more from your peri-workout nutritional supplement stack if you just get an extra hour of sleep. Like, I get it. I'm not arguing that. It's just not a possibility. I have, a, I have an infant and I have, a, I have a, a toddler and I work early in the morning. I, like, I, I understand. I agree with you. Just not realistic. So what are my options to count the calories or count the macros tomorrow? But I think the same thing with like, hey, look, if we improve your gut biome and the diversity of bacterioids versus firmicutes in your actual like gut you might have a little yes yeast overgrowth and tolerate carbohydrates a little bit better you might be able to metabolize maybe potentially like proteins and fats and carbohydrates a little bit better get more value from the things you're eating like maybe you just need to supplement with a probiotic or eat more probiotic or prebiotic rich foods with fiber and all these things like yeah dude i don't know uh, i just how much carbs fats and protein do i need to eat tomorrow and like, yeah, it's all good, man. But the same token too, it's like you're only running, you're running against a brick wall or you're always running at 80% of what you could possibly be from the stuff that's going to take a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. You just sleep more and get more, just better gut diversity or lower your stress and all these things that are really impactful. But I think the thing that like comes out a lot in the wash is that's daunting and intimidating, like getting a fecal transplant when Perlmutter's like, the end of the book, it all just gets changed around. Like the pro- most compelling research we have is when obese people do fecal transplants was basically just taking fecal matter and injecting it in someone's uh, colon. Like that's a big fucking ask. And like, I think that's where it gets crazy. Cause it's like, then it reaches this threshold of like, how bad do you really want this? You know? And like, are you willing to give me an extra 30 minutes of sleep tonight? Seven days in a row? No, I, I, okay, I got to titrate down what I'm telling you here. Cause it's like, that's, that's the rate limiting step. Right. It's like you did with the water challenge of like, you just drink water for a week and then we'll have a conversation. Like they're not going to want to sleep more. And you go, whatever I tell this person to eat or not eat, they're, it's not going to have a net impact. That's hundred percent positive anyway. So let's just stay here. But that, that's the kind of next question I had here. Cause come back on the macronutrients. One thing that I'm thinking a lot about lately this nitrogen balance effect. And like, I've been pretty like steadfast on one gram per pound of body weight protein every day like right no matter what like weight loss weight gain if you're working out great you have a, a net positive amino acid pool and nitrogen balance if you want to lose weight it has a very low insulinic load you can preserve the muscle mass you have just a higher thermic effect of feeding yada 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 but the question i have for a guy like me perspectively so this is a personal one is like all right man i've been 200 pounds for the last pretty much 20 years and I eat 200 grams of protein pretty much every day for the last 30, whatever I've been doing, right? Since I was 13 years old, I've been stuck. Even if I do make a bigger commitment to cardiovascular exercise or being in a deficit of losing weight 
And I'm wondering if just that amino acid or that total protein intake kind of put this like set point, a certain body mass of like, you're always going to be in this net positive nitrogen balance or this like amino acid pool. Do I tinker with the amino acids or the protein? Or is that like, is it a, a calorie thing? Because that's something I, I feel like I'm pretty locked in a lot of variables. It's just that one thing I've been pretty steadfast on, whether it's I'm going a ketogenic or a lower carb approach, or even on the other end of just a lower caloric intake or increasing my cardiovascular exercise, still not much moving the needle in terms of weight loss. Like, have you any of your thoughts on that? Like when you did your experiment, did you tinker with your protein amount or did you keep that pretty steady? I didn't intentionally tinker with my protein intake. I just ate so much less is number one. Mm. So it automatically was tinkered with, but I didn't set, I didn't set out the goal. I knew that to lose weight also, since I was probably about 15% body fat at that point, it was like post season. And you know, you just have so many, so many, uh, chances to eat and you're just kind of more bloated at the end of the, the year. But when are you going to get ice cream Sundays again on Friday? Like you'll never have that again ever. And if you don't, you're actually losing money. If you think about it, right? Like that's coming out of your paycheck somehow, you know, it's just part of the amenities, man. Yeah, but like you, I've I've had this set point of muscle mass. I mean, I've lifted weights. I'm 35 now. I've lifted weights since I was probably 13. That's 22 years of lifting weights consistently. And I'm, you know, of course, I'm still not as strong or as big as I would ever want to be. But like, that's 22 years of establishing this set point of, even though muscle is a metabolic cost to the body, it it would be hard lost. You know, it it it, it would take a change in stimulus like an overwhelming change in stimulus. And, th- and that's what I did. And I ended up, you know, of course I had to lose muscle mass in order to lose weight, you know, to, to compete in the competition. But I think the the biggest thing that I did, I, I, I was exercising according to a, my Apple watch about, I'd say I'd re- averaged about 2,200 calories of exercise calories, not just my RMR 2,200. So I was, I was doing, you know, 45 minutes of cardio in the morning. Then I was doing a circuit training. Um, and I was coaching, you know, I was coaching in the morning too, uh, all morning. And then, you know, at lunch, I would do like a circuit, a metabolic circuit of some sort, and then maybe a high intensity interval, uh, 15 minutes of uh, cardiovascular work that way. And so I was, I was banking a lot of calories and I was matching, I was actually matching my calories to the amount of exercise calories that I was, so like I was, if I was eating, if I was burning twenty two hundred calories of exercise calories, uh, of course guesstimated by my watch, but it was just a it was a relevant set, uh, you know, standard point that I was taking. I was eating twenty two hundred calories. Okay, uh, and I was doing that with a lot of like a lot a lot of my protein was salmon or a lot of the food that I was eating was leafy green vegetables. I was staying, I, I, I had a very low fat intake just because the, the calorie density of that. And I was also keeping myself sane with these Yasso Greek yogurt, hundred calorie bars. I'd have two of those a night and they were amazing. I mean, they, they, I still have them. They're, they're incredible. Sea salt, caramel. So that was like my, my, uh, my point of like, I'm keeping myself sane and I'm, and I'm, I'm doing this. I had no dairy. I I would have a norm, pretty normal dinner, but to go away from just the specifics, it was just I I had I was exercising as much as I was eating, which is an insanely drastically different calorie intake than I was used to. It goes into the next thing: if you're resistance training and you're accustomed to doing really like high intensity or hitting a lot of actual time under tension, and like using this, like you're fixated on recovering from that right and you're thinking i need a certain amount of protein or a certain amount of protein i need a certain amount of carbohydrates so the activities that you're doing like I, I i don't know i mean you do need a lot of like replenishment from the activities that you were doing from extensive cardiovascular work and high intensity interval work but truth be told is i'm not leaving a 30 to 40 minute hit workout and thinking damn i gotta replenish all the amino acids and the protein and the carbohydrates that I expanded probably i probably as comfortable not eating after or something like that as i would if i did nothing in the morning anyway versus you do like um you know 6 12 24 or another protocol that's really challenging probably very similar from a metabolic standpoint or metabolic stress standpoint 
I'm thinking, oh, damn, I got to get at least 40 grams of protein and 100 grams of carbohydrates because I don't want to feel like absolute dog shit tomorrow. So the activity component probably is like just you got to break that cycle as well, right? Like 200 grams of protein and strength training three, four days a week. Like that's another thing that you have to almost like reframe and look at. Like the goal is weight loss. Like the the thing that creates this loop or this this continuous loop off of like carbs, fats, protein is your strength training sessions. Then you might need to revisit that in the first place and maybe do circuits that eh, probably just could do amino acids and not try to like get a ton of protein afterwards. Or I'm going to do cardiovascular work or like, all right, man, I'm just the goal is weight loss. So just do things where I can do a steady state for an extended period of time. Yeah. Did you uh, did you do any like a high intensity work? Because even when I did my bodybuilding show, like my goal is like to strength train all the way through. And uh, my thought is if I can lift a certain amount of intensity, relatively speaking, to my max from when I started and preserving muscle mass. And I'll be able to put it on faster when I'm done. I'm almost 20, so 23. So my metabolism is different. But I lost a considerable amount of strength through that process for sure. Yeah. Weirdly, when I did I did my bod pod before and after, and I it said I lost like a pound of muscle. So it was it was kind of strange. But again, those are estimates based off what your body fat percentage was. My body fat percentage was like four percent. So I lost a lot of weight, and relative to that, it was a lot of uh, non-lean matter, like fat mass, but I don't think that that calculation is accurate that I didn't lose. I only lost one pound of muscle, but if I did, I, that's back of the hand lean cellophane skin. Yeah, no, it was, it was super lean. People were getting really upset that I had lost so much weight. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's a competition. What do you want me to do? You know, but I, I think to answer your question about, you know, you being at the age you are and training for that length of time, I think one big thing about that is that not only will it, it make change, but the benefit of getting very uncomfortable yeah. to make change. So like, even if it, that that's, you know, we're talking physiologically of like, man, I don't want to do an hour of long steady state cardio that's physically just annoying and mentally annoying, but there is some benefit there to doing that. If you're trying to make change, I think the biggest thing is getting really, really uncomfortable and outside of the, the norm in order for anything to make an adaptation. And we always talk about, you know, everyone says be comfortable being uncomfortable or, you know, you have to, you can't grow in a fishbowl and stuff like that. And I think what ends up happening is like in, in that sense is like, well, we've lifted weights for 25 years. And it's like, man, I'm going to go and just crush myself in the gym and get super uncomfortable and in a lactic and feel like I'm going to throw up. But at the same time, that's not really the same discomfort as changing completely what you do. And I, I, I think one, the first one of just like 6, 12, 24 and killing yourself in the gym would make less adaptation for you than it would something a completely new stimulus. So I think part of that is yeah. doing a new stimulus instead of doing more of the same stimulus or you know just slightly rearranging it. If someone were to be looking for actual meaningful change, it would have to be outside the norm of what they're already doing. And that's the difficult part because what we started talking about is, is coaching people to make significant change. And it's very uncomfortable for people to do something new to create significant change. So I think it works in the same way coming from the other side of someone who's so detailed in, in what he does of making those type of changes of like, well, I'm uncomfortable doing an hour of cardio because I don't want to lose muscle mass because I've always wanted to keep muscle mass on. Well, that's, that's a, you know, that's a whole different stimulus in order to make change. So, well, and I, I mean, going to a couple other things of like, I did a moxie analysis of looking at my rate of oxygenation of certain muscle tissue, particularly my quad during biking. And to be completely frank, like, I am very much a sugar burner, like, and, and I go through anaerobic pathways really, really quickly because I'm just so conditioned to that. But 99% of probably all of my exercise has been strength training or anaerobic and or anaerobic lactic. And it's no wonder why when I'm getting ready for a workout, I'm like, damn, man, I could go for a quick carb hit and like, cause I'm going to use it so prevalently when I'm working out or why I like. I get a dread fasted workouts because just quite frankly, it's really challenging for me emotionally and psychologically. So you get this like, well, if I get a bar and a banana and, or maybe like a something that I'm going to have a, a quick hit of some glucose 
and like go hit it, I feel a lot better about training. Same token too, though, again, like what you're talking about, you got to break this loop. If you want to lose weight and you got to be in a caloric deficit, you got to have to match your like your psychological approach to everything you do in a different way. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I, I know how I'm going to feel if I'm doing that. If I'm doing that without carbohydrates, I know how that's going to feel. And I don't want to feel that way. But the point is, is you've got to feel that way, you know, and it's like, you got almost got to do different things. And, you know, when you're doing 60 minutes of steady state cardiovascular work, that, that moment of like glycogen being depleted and just that like psychological drop and you kind of like just lose track or you get like not lightheaded, but like just disoriented and you're like, damn, man, what the fuck am I doing? Like that, it's a delayed process, but that like, you almost need to like reframe and recondition yourself to go exercise as a different point right now, relatively speaking to the goal. Yeah. And, and I think that's the part too, like that's so hard. Uh, and the other part is changing your environment, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I remember we were talking about like, you're doing this challenge and I believe you have a Peloton at home, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that's different than if like, I got to go all the way to a facility to do 60 minutes of cardiovascular work. Like having that one small change, like when I was at army, they redid my kitchen and we had no access to any stove. And so it's like, everything was either in its raw form or cold. Land food is a great way to lose weight. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I don't, there's no like enjoyable experience here. So it's like, I could eat more locks and have more raw spinach with my hand, or I could just not eat. And sure enough, a couple of weeks of that, you start to lose weight rapidly. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about hyperpalatable foods, you know, have an effect on macronutrient intake, all that too. But you're right. I mean, just at the end of the day, bland foods will make you want to eat less, but it's boring. Yeah. So I would say if I were to, if I were to wrap up my idea of when you, when you asked me the first thing, what to talk about with macronutrients in my head. The only thing I wanted to talk about was boring consistency, drinking water. And that's about it. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's so, it's so boring and you know, you can, you can obviously structure your protein intake and be consistent with it. And you can use your carbohydrates intentionally and I do those and I have a lot of people do those and it's, it's successful in, in ways that, you know, if, if I need to be in a caloric deficit, I understand that I need to eat less. If I need to be in a caloric surplus, I know that I need to eat more. And you can do that by, manip by manipulating carbs and fats and keeping your proteins consistent all the time. And, you know, there was, there's a little nuance to be guided around there of, you know, if you're going to be in a caloric deficit, do you increase your protein just a little bit? Sure. You know, I, but there's also mixed research on it. I think one of the big things to leave with is the idea that all of this is a complex problem, which means there's no best practice to it. People want a best practice, but there's not a best practice. There's there's good frameworks. There's best frameworks to that. Yeah. And what it is, you need to figure out emerging solutions. So there are people that thrive on a low carbohydrate carbohydrate diet. There are people that are terrible on a low carbohydrate diet. There's no one answer to be done. There are, again, there are, like there are laws of thermodynamics. You know, you need to be in a caloric deficit or a surplus or whatever you're trying to do. But as you start observing as from a scientific, like a scientist's lens of, well, man, I, I feel really flat on days after I drink milk at night or, you know, I feel really bloated after milk or I... Um, you know, if I don't get a lot of carbohydrates in, I get a headache or I, I don't feel strong in the weight room or I don't feel energetic or if I, you know, all these different things where everyone has these personal reactions to food and also their preferences to food of what they're able to do. And as you, that emerges, that information emerges and you're watching patterns, then you make decisions of, well, I know if I want to be lean and I get bloated when I have dairy, I'm not going to eat dairy. Whereas someone else might thrive on the fact that it's a great, you know, the, the research that says chocolate milk is the best way to, to rehydrate because of the, um, the amount of carbohydrates in it that goes along with it. And, it. and it's right. I mean, it's in theory, it's a great way to rehydrate. Um, but it might make someone feel worse or it might make someone cause gastric distress. What I'm saying is that the, the emerging solution is individual to the person. But they need to be paying attention and they need to keep the variables around that consistent 
which is, are you getting your sleep? Are you hydrating? Are you consistent in, in what you're eating throughout a day? Are you exercising consistently? Are you doing these things? Like, are you, are you keeping your stress, your you know, subjective experience? What is it? Are you stressed? Are you meditating? Are you doing things that are, are psychologically good for you? And if those things are consistent and you can keep those relatively consistent, then I think that you can start to see patterns of, is the food that I'm eating taking me towards the goal that I want? And then, you know, you could do a whole new different podcast on goal setting and, and how that, what that looks like. And, but really consistency, drinking water and knowing that there's no best practice, there's just emerging solutions is what I could have said at the beginning of this. And we didn't have to talk for 15 minutes. Well, I would come back to it. To, we used to always say it, everything works if the people doing it just cared more, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, they don't get it. They don't get it. <laughs> exactly. The people that don't have good success are the people who don't care. Yeah, the Washington Post used to say, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And I think that's a great line. Like, you know, if you don't get it, you don't get it. No, that's it. Seems like a you problem, right? <laughs> like, you know, like this, this should work in theory. It's just only problem would be is it doesn't work with you included. So yeah, it works in theory, but the problem is life. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That human beings are doing it. Just when you wake up tomorrow morning and just remember this is for you. Just remember to care, and it should work out just fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, man, I appreciate you taking the time, man. This is awesome. This is great insight, and uh, honestly, really cool, man. Great to catch up, and uh, yeah, I think this might be this might be the shortest conversation you and I have ever had. So. Yeah. No, and we we've, we've had a lot. Of offline conversations too so this is good this is good this is uh yeah it's just giving the, the the meat and potatoes like you know quote unquote with with a little bit of broccoli in the side no doubt I'll, i'm selling that if anyone's uh you know will's broccoli uh i'm going into business so yeah great wilburn great will greenberg pro tip when you're at the grocery store just rip the stem off the broccoli and you get all the nutritional value <laughs> saves you money i don't i'm not gonna eat this why do i why do i want yeah but then we want the most fibers in the stem and it's not weighed by the pound it's weighed by the bush it's cut it's priced by the bushels it didn't make a difference you're just leaving stems randomly around uh yeah uh, <laughs> all right man well uh thank you again i appreciate the time man 